When you think of the word sound, and normally we think of music or we think of a noise that we would respond to. But think about a different definition of sound. Sound can also mean reliable, something that's free of disease or damage or defect. It's trustworthy. It's solid. And this morning, the question I want to put out to you is this. How sound is your theology? How sound is your doctrine, the ways that you think about God? Is what you believe about God actually true? Um, the soundness of some things is of massive importance, but we don't think or talk about it until something is wrong, perhaps. Think about the foundation under this building right now. We don't think about it, but it's really, really important. The soundness of a church's doctrine acts as a, as a foundation of sorts, and that's what we're going to be looking at in just a few moments uh, last week, we talked about the importance of preaching. Preach the word, Timothy, is what Paul said. And it's the idea that God dreamt up preaching to build up the church. And here's the focus this morning. It's not just that we preach, but that we get it right. It's that we get the message right. The content matters. It matters what we preach, not just a bunch of words. In 1961, an author by the name of A.W. Tozer wrote an excellent book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in The Knowledge of the Holy, there's a quote that I actually put in your bulletin this morning. It says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He uses that in the plural, us, not individually, me. He goes on to say this, for this reason, listen to this, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only for individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. We're in a series right now called The Church is God's Idea. And it's just an invitation to the Holy Spirit to say, Spirit, blow through this place and reform us from our deformity. We recognize that man's idea tends to creep into the church over time. And so we're looking to the scriptures, we're looking to the Holy Spirit to say, correct us. Accurate thoughts about God are the highest priority. Not just in what we say in the words, not what we study in Bible study, but even in what we sing. We take great care to sing accurate theology. In life, you have really deep, penetrating questions that live side by side with really deep convictions. And so this morning, we thought we would take the second half of our opening worship set, and kind of mirror that. Titus chapter 1 is where we're at. If you don't own a Bible, take the one in front of you and begin to use that this morning, and you'd be welcome to keep that as our gift to you. But we will be in the book of Titus chapter 1 in a moment. Carl, can you bring up the first slide for me? I've already advanced two ahead, I think. Uh, I want you to also pull out your bulletin, the sermon notes, and I want to just cover a couple of terms. We have a lot to get to this morning, and so we're just going to jump right in with, with some things. One of the things I wrote down in your bulletin is this statement. 
that biblical theology and sound doctrine are vital to the life of every believer and the welfare of the church. So just so that we're clear on the terms theology and doctrine and kind of the nuances of that, I've just put it right into your, your notes this morning so you can look there. Theology is the study of God. Think about its cousins, biology, psychology, sociology. It's just theo. It's, it's theos, the, the study of God. And biblical theology would be to add as he's revealed in the scriptures. Now, theology is a word that you could search the scriptures for and you won't find it on the pages of scripture, although you could say that every page of scripture is about theology. The next word you actually will find in the scriptures. If you did a word search on doctrine, you would discover it's all through there. Doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching. So think about a map for a moment. It presents a coherent, though complex, unity. Kind of discussing how the the parts relate to the whole, right? Think on your GPS. You could zoom into your street, but also figure out how to get to Sacramento by zooming out. You would see how the parts connect to the whole. That's what doctrine does with the scripture. Now, I recognize this morning that when I start off saying, hey, church, we're going to talk about sound doctrine, that doctrine has a bad name that many of us in this room have these words come into our minds when we hear the word doctrine. Dry, boring, complicated. That sometimes that's, that's what people think of. Sometimes they think when they hear the word doctrine, they just envision two people arguing. Because doctrine tends to create passionate disagreement amongst brothers and sisters in the church. So many people tend to avoid it, but to their own peril. You've heard the expression, don't discuss politics and what? Religion, right? A subset of that, I would say, is doctrine in the church. But you avoid it to your own peril. R.C. Sproul, theologian, says this, to despise doctrine is to despise the word of God. Now, here are some common things that I hear when I talk to people. When I talk to people about the Lord just around this city, I often hear people say this, I like to think about God as, and then they begin to fill in the blank, whatever that might might be. Or if there's a certain topic being discussed, whatever that might be, they say, you know, the God that I believe in would never, and then fill in the blank. Here's the point. It's really, really common today for people to believe to be true simply what they desire to be true. To believe to be true of God, simply what they want to desire to be true of God. I think it's true that if someone says, I, I think God, I like to think of God as this, or I think God would never do this, it's probably a more accurate reflection on them just sharing a little bit about who they are than who God really is. Biblical theology and sound doctrine are vital to the life of every Believer. Remember the foundation a few minutes ago? It's something we sometimes don't think or talk about much, but it's vital to the health of every believer and the welfare of the church. These things, biblical theology and sound doctrine, move God from this kind of fluffy compilation of opinions, which is how he exists in the minds of many people, to objective, rational reality. Let me show you this in the church, first of all. So here we are. I, I flew up in my plane this week, and I took a picture uh, of, of our church. Um, no, that's actually Google Earth that helped me out with that. And, uh, and think about leadership. 
So, so this is true in leadership, that, that, that the way someone believes about God, their theology, their doctrine, really affects um, their lifestyle and their, and their daily life. You know, the Bible sets the bar for who is supposed to lead in the local church. And rather that, rather that being some, you know, hidden document in a vault in a good old boys club, we all get to look at that. Titus chapter 1 verse 7 is one of the places where we see Paul writing to the churches and he says this, listen for how the qualifications of a leader in the church pairs one's belief with one's lifestyle. To say it a different way is this, that they have not only sound doctrine, but sound living. And one without the other is no good. Here it is, Titus 1, 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Do you hear a lot of godly living in there? That's sound lifestyle. Now listen to this in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Sound theology and sound doctrine is imperative in the church. There are going to be seekers to any church that will come and try to find out what are the Christians doing. Right? There's something about your life. I want to come check this out. I want to come discover what the Christians are doing. And the examination of outsiders who are considering the truth claims of Jesus Christ, that there really is good news, that there really is eternal life, that there really is the forgiveness of your sins, the examination of those truth claims by outsiders is going to be both our lives, but also asking great questions that should be asked. Deep questions, penetrating questions. And seekers need questions answered. And antagonists to the gospel need their arguments refuted. Sound doctrine is what produces that for people. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 1 of Titus. This is also in the church. But as for you, talking about Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice that he doesn't say teach sound doctrine. There are other places in the scripture that were to teach sound doctrine, but he says teach what aligns with sound doctrine. And then he goes on for nine verses explaining to him how different groups of people in the church are to respond to one another. Older men and younger men, older women and younger women, bosses and employees, here's how you're to treat one another. Treat one another in a way that lines up with the truth. The goal of some people in, in Sunday mornings is to teach the Bible. I think that's a poor goal for a preacher. To simply teach the Bible uh, would make it basically be like seminary class each week. None of you get seminary credits or Bible college credits for sitting in church on Sundays. You know why? I don't stand up here and just teach the Bible. That's not my aim. My aim instead is to teach in such a way that the people of God would live and think biblically. That's a huge difference. To teach the Bible, I I might just start at Genesis and just work my way straight through. If all it was was content, wouldn't that be just an accurate thing? I guess I'll just start at page one. Let's start teaching through the material. No. Teach what aligns with sound doctrine. 
And then Paul goes on to say, that means that older men, you're to do this. Younger men, do this. Older women, you're to do this. And younger women, you're to do this. And, it, and it's, it's truth, it's knowledge that is applicable. Let me illustrate this by a conversation I had with my fourth grader this week. She saw AZ, capital AZ, the, uh, the shorthand for Arizona. And she said, Dad, what does AZ stand for? Now, when she asked that question, I could have given her the latitude and longitude of the state capital. I could have had her sit down and color a picture of the state flag. I could have belted out the state song, if I only knew the state song of Arizona. I suppose all of those would have been accurate things, but she's in fourth grade. We're just having a conversation. So here's what I said. I said, sweetie, it's a state like California. It's next to us. And basically, if you go down to Disneyland and hang a left and head east, you'd bump into Arizona. You know what she said? Oh, and then we moved on. What was I doing? I'm a dad, so I'm a teacher. So I'm just giving her kind of her world. She's figuring her world out. So what is Arizona? She may have no idea if that's a plant or if that's a planet, right? But if I give her that little context, that's, that's allowing her to see the whole and kind of how it fits in with her, right? Now, what if she comes home the next day in tears? And she says, Daddy, I'm really, really upset. I said, why are you upset, sweetie? She said, well, Disneyland doesn't even exist. It's not a real place. And I'd say, well, sweetie, why, why would you say that? Well, someone at school told me that that was true. Now, at that point, that would be a longer discussion, right? Because at that point, I would sit down and say, well, well, let's, let's look at some evidence. Let's think through how we receive uh, information. Someone told you that's true, but they're wrong. Let me show you how to understand that that is not a real thing. And so I might walk her through with some evidence, and then I might break out latitude, longitude. I might break out a map and show her, no, this is a real place. In fact, here's a picture, Cassie, of you at Disneyland. It's a real place. So you can get to Arizona you know, by, by, by doing this. This is an example now of refuting heresy. When someone comes into the church and they're upsetting whole families because of lies, this is where church leadership and godly Christians should step forward and say, that's not true. Stop crying. Disneyland's real, right? And we're going to sit down. We're going to have the more lengthy conversation about Disneyland and Arizona and all those kinds of matters. Now, times of formal teaching help shape our beliefs and our convictions. But what about when the church leaves the building? The church is going to leave the building here in just a few minutes. You're the church, right? So so what happens uh, when the reality is most of our life doesn't happen right here at this building, but more like this, right? What about the rest of the 164 hours in our week that we aren't either sitting in church or in a formal Bible study? What then? Let me give you the motivation for doing the hard work of developing sound doctrine, because it's hard work. I want you to consider a doctor for a moment. Okay, Doctors need to make split-second decisions with huge consequences on a regular basis. Okay? Doctors need to make split-second decisions with huge consequences on a regular basis. Here's the question. How can they know what to do with so many variables? And many of those variables are unknown to them in the moment of decision. How do they know what to do? Here's what they do. They devote years of their life to studying human anatomy and physiology. They study the whole to see how everything fits together. Right? 
Then, when someone comes and they need an accurate diagnosis on a malfunctioning kidney, they know what it is, they know what its function is, they know what it should be doing, and they know how it affects the whole, right? Instead of just going, well, let's yank that puppy out of there. That thing's causing you problems. They need to know the whole of the body. So think about sound doctrine in the same way for the Christian. Life comes at us in real time. Split-second decisions must be made with huge consequences. And like doctors study the whole and how things fit together, and then they can know the, the, the way forward, so Christians devote themselves to the study of biblical theology, and they study the whole and how things fit together so they can make those in-the-moment, split-second decisions. Will you get every single diagnosis right? No, you won't. But can you move forward with increasing confidence as you study the whole, as you submit yourself to the discipline of sound theology? Yeah. That's why when you're around someone who's just been a Christian for a long time and and walking with the Lord, not Christian in name only, but they're, they're men and women of the word, things flow out of their mouth that you discover later on in your quiet time reading that are just scripture. They're just, they're just thinking and saying and praying scripture. And so they're able to move through life, making these split-second decisions. Grasping biblical theology requires serious effort in the same way it takes to become a doctor. You won't get there with just 15-minute devotion reading every single day, as good as that is. Some of you are at that, at that step of saying, I'm just going to devote myself to read God's word every single day. Praise God for that. I am overjoyed that you're going to be allowed to be fed firsthand from the Lord. That's, that's thrilling to me. But sound doctrine, biblical theology, figuring out how the whole fits together, if you go at that 15 minutes a day with some light devotional reading, you won't get there. It requires serious thinking. It requires carved out time to wrestle with things. Scripture tells us who God is and who we are and where we've come from and what's wrong with the world and what God's doing to fix the world. Let me give you two books that are utterly loaded with theology. Ephesians and Romans. If you want to start in a place and just go, let me, let me just go into some, some nice light reading this evening. Go start studying Ephesians and Romans. Don't just read it lightly over it. Read it and engage with it. It's loaded with sound teaching, but I have a warning for you. It's going to make your brain hurt. It's going to raise questions that actually will disturb your faith. They'll kind of break down some preconceived things, some neat little answers that you have, and it will begin to challenge you, and that will be a great, great thing. Here's the big idea on why getting doctrine right is vital. Here's sort of the aha moment. If you want to write this down in your, in your notes this morning. The, the big aha this morning is this. God is the perfect communicator, and he is speaking. God's not one who can't quite get his thoughts together and doesn't quite know how to say it. He's the perfect communicator. Think about that for a minute. That means if there's a problem with the message, it's not on God's end. Don't you often think it is with God? God, would you just write this in the sky for me? Would you send me a sign? Would you do all these different things? I've lobbed a lot of things in my years, accusing God of not communicating well enough. God is the perfect communicator, and he is speaking. Catch this. Sound theology, then, is the ongoing search to make sure that we're understanding God correctly. 
It's the ongoing understanding that we have it right. Not to win a contest in, in the battle of rightness, but rather to make sure that we understand God as he's revealed himself. Think about your relationships for a minute. I'm doing two weddings this coming spring that I'm thrilled about. Two different couples here in the church that will be getting married on back-to-back weekends. And in premarital counseling, we take an entire session on communication. We look at biblical speaking principles and biblical listening principles. The Bible has a lot to say on communication. I teach them about clarifying responses where if your spouse is saying something, that you might say something like this in return. So what I hear you saying is, right? And then and you kind of say it back to them to make sure you've got the message right. Or what did you mean when you said, right? And then communication is really happening that way. Because so often you will be as crystal clear as you can be and someone receives something totally different. That's, that's potentially happening right now. I think I'm being really clear and you're receiving something totally different. Now, unless you're Mr. and Mrs. Spock, um, you're not content with just data, right? You're not content with just the content of the words going back and forth, but on the heart and the importance of it. Here's a really good thing. Someone comes home from work that day, and they just unload, and they're saying all these different things, and the spouse is sitting there and might say this, of all the things that you're telling me, what's the most important thing you want me to grasp right now? Or maybe this, what do you need from me right now? It's pretty typical for guys to want to jump in and fix the problems of the women. And the women are like, I just want to tell you about it. Stop trying to fix, right? I see some nods. I see your hand. Lovers are students of the beloved. Lovers are students of the beloved. It's a school that you enroll in and you never graduate from. Till death do us part is the vow, right? And so you're a student of the beloved. And communication will determine the level of oneness and intimacy that you experience. Now, bring this back to God. Are you listening to understand God? Because he is communicating. He is speaking. Theologians like to carve out revelation in two big kind of buckets. The first bucket is general revelation. To marvel at the elaborate laws that govern matter, space, and time causes a reaction in us. Unquestioned. Just just go stand at the base of El Capitan in Yosemite and just listen to people who've never seen it before. It's awesome. And no matter how many times you see Yosemite Valley, you drive in there and you're just your your jaw just drops. Psalm chapter 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. Albert Einstein is a guy who came along and he upset all of Sir Isaac Newton's, his principles of, of how the universe was put together with his general theory of relativity. And he famously said this. He said, God does not play dice with the universe. Einstein, as he went along and, and was discovering, he saw order, he saw patterns, and he saw logic as the fabric of our universe. In a word, he saw a designer. Now, Albert Einstein never saw God as someone personable or knowable from as far as you can tell from his letters and from different things, but he couldn't deny that God was a creator. God doesn't play dice with the universe actually spurred him on with the belief that there was, in fact, more to be known, to be understood. So it spurred him on to discovery. But creation, when you think about it, doesn't reveal specifics, right? You can kind of get a sense of some things. You can kind of get a sense of order. You can get a sense of the fall, 
right? But you can't get any specifics. Well, God didn't keep us wondering. He wrote a book. This is called Special Revelation by theologians. The Bible is special revelation. Primarily, it tells us of the life of Jesus, but it also fills in the specifics regarding sin and salvation, heaven, hell, the nature of God, the incarnation, the church, redemption, etc. Now, trusting that God is communicating in the same way that, that Einstein trusted that there actually was a designer to the universe keeps you pursuing. What does God mean? What is truth? What is the accurate understanding of what he's trying to communicate to me? And this is where sound doctrine comes in. Flip over in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4. There's a poem that Emily Dickinson wrote called, Tell All the Truth, But Tell It Slant. And in it she says this, As lightning to the children eased, with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. You know who she borrowed this from? Jesus. Think about our Red Word series. Our Red Word series was the conviction that the greatest preacher who ever walked the face of the earth is still preaching because he's still alive. We read the Gospels with childlike wonder because the sermons that he preached so long ago that have been recorded for us in the Gospels are still speaking right into my Tuesday morning. The greatest preacher still preaches. To get his point across, Jesus did a lot of walking with his talking. That is, we see in the Gospels this fleshing out of sound doctrine by the way that he lived. So the people who were watching him, his disciples, yes, they learned from from kind of formal teaching times, but they learned so much just by, by walking with him. But he did, in fact, talk. Jesus used sermons to teach, but his primary method of teaching was stories. He did a lot of storytelling. Why? I believe it's because it's truth told slant. It's lightning shown, but parceled out in little bits so that we don't turn away from it and don't get the light. Jesus often appears evasive, unnecessarily elusive and vague, in some of his responses. For those of you who know your Bible well, you'll kind of be able to fill in the the scenario around each of these, but just listen to these. Are you the son of God, Jesus? Go look up how he answered that one. Who is going to betray you? Here's another one. Is it right for my brother to do this? Here's one. By whose authority do you do these things? Now, when you see the question posed to Jesus, there's a part of me who's, who's had the freedom to understand the whole of Scripture. I got to read the end of the story. And I just want to say, let them have it, Jesus. Unload on them. Give them the whole thing. Instead, what does Jesus do? So many times, he says, let me ask you a question. And then if you answer that, I'll answer your question. How's that? Fair enough, bring it on. He asks a question, and what happens? Silence. No one dared ask him another question. Huh. Hey, is it right for, for me to, to have this go on between me and my brother? Did Jesus know the answer? Of course. What does he say? Who made me judge over you? That's a little bit head-scratching. He's the judge. He's the judge of the universe. 
Jesus had an oft-repeated phrase, and it was this, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Unlike many teachers, Jesus was completely fine with people going away, not with all the answers that they were seeking. He never gave words to show off his knowledge or just make sure that there was a content dump going on. Look, I've given you the information. It's on you now. Instead, he was teaching which, that which was, was aligned with, that which accords with sound doctrine. And sometimes people aren't ready to receive it. In 1 Timothy 4, we see that sound doctrine is central to God's idea of the church. And first what we see is a warning. 1 Timothy 4, chapter 1, says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. There are small and large lies that abound. And they come at us from every which way, and they come at us from pulpits. Therefore, test what you're taught. Test what you're taught. Be like the Bereans that we looked at last week. There's a good way and a bad way to listen to sermons, right? There's a good way and a bad way to listen to movies. Movies are just modern-day storytellers. They have an agenda. They have a point that they're trying to, to, to push out. Test the news that you receive. Test the spirit of the teaching. What's the fruit of this teaching? That's what 1 John tells us to do. Let's look at the next few verses. Follow along in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Here's the charge that's being given. First a warning and now a charge. Point out the truth. Explain life with God. Timothy, you've been raised in this. You're walking in this. You're growing in this. Put this before the people. Have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly myths. There's all kinds of side arguments you can get engaged in. Don't be a part of that. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And then I want to show you the importance or urgency of this. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. For to this end, listen to all these adjectives describing how we do it. We toil and strive. Because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here's the results. The results of this kind of effort 
our salvation for all eternity. Not just for yourself as a teacher, Timothy, but for the people who hear you, for the church. This is what demands words like toil, strive, devote, unwavering attention, practice, immersion, scrutiny, and persistence. We have a pretty amazing thing going on right up the road from us in the world of basketball. Here's a question. How important is it that Steph Curry shoot the ball well? Just think about that, okay? I heard a sports fan say very, okay? They're not ashamed to say that in church. To 19,596 people who've packed out the Oracle Arena 150 times straight now, it's hugely important that he shoots the ball well, right? Massively important. He got to where he was by one simple thing, tons of practice. He's naturally gifted, but he practices. He works hard. And it's not bare minimum, but I would, I would say his practice probably is something like this, toil, striving, devotion, unwavering attention, immersion, scrutiny, and persistence kind of practice. Someone said of practice this, don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. That's what it seems to be with Steph Curry. He's blowing everyone away. If it's worth Steph giving his effort to basketball, Christian, how much more so for us to living well, to living rightly, to have sound doctrine that leads to sound living Now, athletic training does have value, but godliness, you up that, whatever value there is in the athletic world, you up it by a factor of eternity. That's how important it is. uh, Athletes train, uh, training always involves how to deal with the opposition. Um, I heard this a couple weeks ago that that Steph's record for number of three-pointers made in a row is 77. So 77 times in a row, he shot a three-pointer and made it. Out of 100 one time, he shot 96, and he was upset about the few that he missed. That's a lot. Go try to shoot one sometime. That's a lot. Now, it's one thing to do it in practice. Steph's job is to score when people are dead set on stopping him, when they are striving with every bit of their unwavering attention to stopping what he does. That's what actually makes his shooting so utterly remarkable, is that he has opposition in his face. Biblical theology, not just mediocre theology, not just theology that comes from your mind, not just how you like to think about God on any given day, but biblical theology helps you cope with the opposition. Um, John, would you stand up for just a minute? We have in our midst, I just met John. John, what's your last name? Cain. Cain. Um, John Cain uh, and and his family are here, and um, and they are uh, they are some people who've devoted was it thirty two years, thirty two years with an organization called OMF. Um, he works overseas. His family has devoted their time working with with planting churches, raising up churches among the Hmong people in kind of Laos, Vietnam, that area. And uh, he's a hero of the faith, their family. And I know John doesn't want this for his glory, but as, a, as one reflecting God's glory, can we just give a round of applause to John? <clears throat> stay standing for one second. Um, I didn't know John was going to be here, but um, stay standing just for a second, John. 
Um, I didn't know John was going to be here, but something that John said, we, we just met with John. You could be praying with us. The GO team, which is our global outreach team, we are always praying, God, who do you want us partnering with? Um, we, we want to partner with spreading the gospel around the world and right here around our neighborhood. We're praying about John and his family and taking them on in support. And so we just would invite you to, to, to join in that prayer. Um, John shared something at the meeting this last Sunday night that has really stayed with me. And he said this. He said, you know, um, uh, there, are, uh, there are churches who are really, really heavily persecuted, and, um, and they, are, they are the stronger churches. What's happening is, what did you describe about the courage that's been raised up in people who've been persecuted for their faith? Just the, speak to the courage that's been raised up in those people. Thank you, John. If you want to discover, he said conversely, by the way, that those churches that have it far more comfortable are actually starting to fall away into heresy. They're starting to get into, into pointless arguments. They're starting to get in and dabble into all kinds of side truths that aren't that important. If you want to discover how sound theology is a foundation and unsound theology is a terrible foundation to build a church on, have a conversation with these three after service. Probably the best picture I could give to you about having biblical theology and how you cope with the enemy is the temptation of Jesus Christ. What happened to the temptation of Jesus Christ is lies were, were packaged like truth, but they were deformed, they were perverted, and they were offered up to Jesus Christ. And what Jesus did is he took the truth of Scripture and he shattered those, right? He came back understanding, he had an understanding of biblical theology, and he coped with the opposition by understanding what was true and what was not true. He sniffed out the lies. Why? Because he knew the word of God. That's the command for us. That's the call for us. I'm giving you two examples of doctrine in real life this week. One is for your community groups to discuss, and it's from a headline this week. But the other one's biblical. It's from the life of Joseph. Life of Joseph, if you don't know, is, is the guy whose brothers sell him into slavery out of jealousy. The famine hits the land and his own brothers show up from far away to seek out food in Egypt. By this point, God's raised him up to be second in command under Pharaoh. And literally the fate of these brothers who sold him into slavery so many years before is literally in Joseph's hand right now. What would you do? What would you do in that moment? Here's where your theology leaks out. Whether you want it to or not, here's exactly where your theology leaks out. Many in this room would say, God is sovereign. Do you believe that? I believe that with all my heart. In this moment, the sovereignty of God, as, 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 as a belief that you state or a conviction that holds you and won't let you go, comes leaking out of your life. Listen to Joseph's response. He says, and now do not be distressed or angry. His brothers are terrified once they discover it's Joseph because they know the guilt of their sin. He says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He goes on to say this, so it was not you who sent me, but God. Joseph's theology, you watch this through his whole life. Joseph's theology shaped the interpretation of his life's events. Whether pain handed to him or power handed to him. His theology shaped his life. Even though people around him meant things for evil, he knew God was in control. Here's a, here's a verse that's quoted often in kind of a shiny, happy way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you think that's a shiny, happy verse, tell that to Joseph. 
That doesn't mean that, wow, God, you know, I had a flat tire and I looked in my trunk and there was a spare. God really does work out all things together. When you're really tested, that verse comes to light in a different way. Joseph wasn't shielded from discomfort, from sin, from pain, and neither will we. Our theology matters. Get it right. Now, this could be said. You you may have received this on the cover of your bulletin this morning with shame-inducing arrogance. Get it right. That's not how it's meant at all. It's meant with fire-inducing passion. God is the perfect communicator. Our understanding of it, our receiving of God's message, man, let's get it right. Not to win the contest, but to, but to understand and know as the beloved, the lover of our souls. We don't want to just get it right in the head, but we want to get it right in the heart. We want to get it right in our relationships. We want to get it right in our choices, in our thinking. When we say that you are the church, it means for this place to be growing, each individual member must be growing in their doctrine. Each individual member must be growing in their understanding of who God is. Let your knowing and your doing grow up side by side. You know, as I was studying for this, it was Wednesday, I believe, I was studying for this sermon. I had been for a while. And I received this text from my brother in Atlanta. He says, hey Dave, Melissa, that's his wife, Melissa and I are working through Luke 2 and had a question about the theology of Christ as both human and God. Specifically, around his time at the temple, learning, questioning, answering. Got a few minutes? I picked up the phone, I called him, and I said, tell me about it. So they were talking about it. She had heard some things in her community group. She was just wondering about it a little bit. And I said, guys, I want to just tell you a wow moment. I hope you're sitting down, because this blows me away. I said, you are following through on the application to the sermon that's coming up this Sunday. You're doing right now what I'm going to call our people to do. And that is, when you're studying, when you're devotional reading, and you come across something that's really challenging, how can Jesus be all God and all human at the same time? That makes my brain hurt. What you're doing is this. You are reaching out and pursuing answers. You're diving in and discovering. Melissa said it led her to go and begin searching the Gospels for a couple of hours that afternoon. And now here they are on the phone with me, uh, wrangling through this for about 40 minutes as we talk through the scriptures. How much stronger is their church? Because average church members, Steve and Melissa, are growing in their understanding of God. They weren't in a theology competition that weekend, so they thought they'd call their pastor brother to get some insight. They were just reading their Bible. They were just coming across truth and saying, I want to grow in that. I want to know that more. Church, imagine if hundreds of thousands of Christians put the hard work to understand the whole of Scripture in. How much would this city change if Christians in San Jose just began to study God like he could be known, to really seek to understand what he is communicating? How much on-site triage would occur as God's Word is brought to bear on the hurts and the questions and confusion of our city. God is speaking. 
Neighborhood Bible Church, let's listen carefully. Let's joyfully toil and strive and devote and practice and persist as we see here in Timothy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for revelation. We thank you, God, that you stir something in us as we dissect and study the way the world's been put together. We thank you, God, that you didn't leave us guessing and filled with questions, but, God, that you put in what you see fit to reveal about Jesus. I thank you, God, for difficult passages that that draw us deeper into you. God, I pray for people in this room, many of whom already are on a journey of discovery with you, God. I pray that none of us would be content to discover what we discover for a year and then let it sit. But Lord, that you would lead us on into deeper waters of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.